I would ask you to keep your Bibles open to Galatians 4. We're going to spend some time both in 3 and 4 again. We're completing Paul's thought process here before he gets to what is one of the key passages next week, which is Galatians 5. Let me tell you where we've been, because it all relates to where we're going today. A couple weeks ago, we made the proclamation as we were looking in Galatians 3 that your existence does not make you a child of God. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you a child of God. Last week, we built on that, and we said children of God grow, and they grow to be like the Father, the one uh, who we are a child of. This week, we add one more piece to it. Let me start with a story about our dog to get there. Um, Our dog is super nice, wouldn't hurt a fly. She can't catch him anyways, but she wouldn't hurt any of us. And uh, months ago, she got hold of somebody's pizza from the table, most of the piece of pizza, and she's got you know, hanging out of the sides of her mouth. This is quite a prize for the dog. Sad for me because it's one of the great foods, but she got it. And she's there with this, trying to find a corner to hide in so that nobody can take the pizza from her. And I see it, and I'm thinking, I don't want to deal with this later, so let's just get as much of the pizza away from the dog as possible. And she has that instinct within her to protect the food and yet not bite the hand that feeds her because she would never hurt me. And she's fighting that instinct as hard as possible. It's that predator instinct that even though the dog is domesticated, it's still in there really deep. And that predator instinct that's in there is, I don't know what I'm going to eat next, even though she knows she's doing just fine. But the predator instinct says, I don't know what I'm going to eat next, so I'm going to eat all that I can of the kale that I've got, gorge on it, and take all I can get now. And sometimes we have that in this life with the things that God has already given us. We're going to take all that we can now, not thinking about what God has promised us for the future. So your existence doesn't make you a child of God. Faith in Jesus Christ does. Children grow up to be like the Father, but children of God know their hope. That's where we go today. They're not just living for now. They're living for what is to come. That's how their lives are organized. Galatians 3.3. So I I told you we'd move a little bit around. Galatians 3.3, Paul has already asked this pivotal question in this whole train of thought that we're in. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or because God gave it to you, basically? And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Paul's use of the word flesh here, he means sinful nature. The stuff that's turned away from God naturally and instinctively. The stuff that's turned towards self. And he's putting that with law together. Flesh, uh, the flesh, the sinful nature, and the law, we talked about the law last week, that that's the vehicle that gets us from point A to point B, but it is not our salvation, it is not our redemption. It simply sets the terms of what that's going to look like. He says if you live that way, by the flesh, by the sinful nature, then you're living under the curse. You're not living the promise of the Spirit. He says, in fact, the promise is how we're supposed to live. If you're a child of God, then what you've been given by your redemption is the Spirit of the Son is in you. And that equals redemption. Paul's making that clear distinction, and he uses this interesting metaphor, this example of Hagar and Sarah, 
to make his point then when we get to chapter 3 or 4. But, but the key, this pivotal point that we skipped over last week is right in the middle of that, at the very end of chapter 3, verse 29. Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And we heard, when Stephanie had the correct text, that was operator error putting it in this week, when Stephanie read the correct text that was supposed to be read this morning from Genesis 18, uh, you hear about the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. There would be a son. And, and by that son, God's going to bless all people in the world. And he's going to be a father of na- many nations. Anybody who uh, blesses him, he will bless. Anybody who curses Abraham and his descendants, God will curse. That's the covenant. And Paul talks about these two covenants. Let's start with what is a covenant to define our terms. A covenant is a two-way promise that's made. And God makes this promise with Abraham and with all who follow, and that promise says that God promises his care and faithfulness, and then the other side of the promise is his people promise human obedience. They're going to obey God. And you can see the story of that playing out all throughout the Old Testament. God's always faithful. God's always caring. People are often breaking their side of the bargain, yet God still goes on. Has every right to break it, but God still goes on. It was made with Abraham before the law, so when Paul's bringing the law, he says that's, that's the law as a vehicle to take us from the original promise, covenant promise to the new covenant in Christ. That's why Christ is the seed of Abraham. He's making all of these connections. But for Abraham and Sarah, we saw this morning in Genesis 18, and I'll, I'll go take us back even further to Genesis 16 in a moment, that God had made this promise, but there's some doubt that gets in there for Abraham and Sarah. They're going to be, he's going to be father of many nations, yet they're getting old and there's no kid yet. So how is this going to happen? They start to doubt. Let me read for you Genesis 16, 1 through 6. It's not going to be on the screen, just listen to it. And the names are Sarai and Abram at this point. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. Let's start with the simple stuff here. There's an awful lot wrong in this passage. An awful lot to address, and we're not even going to get into all of it. You can just see it flying off the page, that when this doubt comes into play, all of a sudden they take things into their own hands, and there's all kinds of problems of jealousy and doubt, and just name them, they're there all over it. Obviously, for Abraham and Sarah, they felt like God's promise was taking too long to be fulfilled, and so they took things into their own hands, and that's where the problems begin. They have God's promise on the one hand, 
but then their impatience is added to that, and what do they get? Disobedience. Just plain and simple, disobedience. And that causes all these problems. Now, innocent people are involved. Innocent children are involved. It gets messy. The child that they're promised will be Isaac. God's given them that promise, the covenant. It's reaffirmed a couple times in the beginning chapters of Genesis that this promise is going to be fulfilled. You saw the visitors come at the oaks at Marm there, and they, they reaffirmed that, hey, the baby's going to come, and it's going to be really soon. That's going to be Isaac. But instead, they create Ishmael along the way. Do you ever get impatient with God and the speed at which God seems to be fulfilling his promises to you? A few nods out there. You could put it a different way. Do you ever create an Ishmael, though God has promised you an Isaac? Do you ever create more problems along the way because you're doubting that God is going to do what God's going to do when God's given us this promise? It's, it's the whole idea of God's given us this hope, but sometimes we're so ready to just do what, what we want to do now that we kind of steal from God, essentially. It can attack us in all kinds of different ways. The pursuit of a perfect life, right? The, the Pinterest life or the pain-free life. We can live like God probably has good things for us, but I want mine now. And so we produce an Ishmael, one we've been promised, an Isaac. In the text from Genesis that we read this morning, you can see that by the way, the chapter before, Abraham had laughed at this, this so Sarah's not the only one who laughed. Abraham had already laughed, had laughed at, well, am I going to have a child at this old age of life? You know, we saw in verse 10, when one of them said, you're surely going to have a child by this time next year, what does Sarah do? She's hiding in the corner, kind of listening in, and then she laughs. I'm just, I'm old, I'm worn out, I'm going to have a child now? Huh, that's not going to happen. They both doubted the promise. So they created an Ishmael when they're promised an Isaac. Paul, in making his case here of looking towards the promise and living towards the promise of the Spirit, quotes Isaiah 54, that's in Galatians 4.27. And he quotes this, this passage from Isaiah, which comes from a time when the people had been unfaithful as uh, being uh, unfaithful to a husband. As a, in that case, that's what's being uh, shown here. As God's covenant people, they had broken the covenant repeatedly, over and over again. They're facing the consequences. And the message comes through Isaiah, and Paul uses this. It says, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. That is to say, it's more important to do right in obedience, and God will fulfill his promise, than to steal that time and do wrong to create an Ishmael now. It's, it's better to wait for the Isaac and the fulfillment of that promise, even though there will be difficult moments, than to try and steal that time and create our best reality now. And there will be difficult moments in this life. We absolutely know this. 
I love reading the Sermon on the Mount, but I, I get disconcerted like most of us do when we get to that point where Jesus says, you know, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. The sun shines on them too. Those who do right and those who do wrong, and sometimes it seems like those who do wrong prosper. And it's frustrating. But better to wait for the promise of the Isaac than create an Ishmael now. We have to, we have to think to ourselves, can I be content as a child of God, waiting for God's best. And in that waiting, God will give us some of the good now, but not the best yet. The best is yet to come. One way I think it's helpful to think about this, I return to this a lot in my own mind, and I've brought it to you from time to time before, is the idea of what we call common grace versus efficacious grace or saving grace. Common grace is something that's afforded to all of us, everybody who exists now and ever has and ever will. It's God's gift of life to us. God, in we don't deserve life. God gave it to us as a gift. The fact that we're able to draw breath, the fact that we have animated movement, we can move around, we can think, we can do things in this life and live this life and even enjoy this life. Don't hear me say we shouldn't enjoy what God's given us. That's the purpose. God wants us to enjoy this life. We've been given common grace, but we haven't been given common grace to squander. It's it's given to us as an opportunity for that saving grace. We're not saved by common grace. Everybody's got that. Everybody's experiencing that right now in this room. We're experiencing common grace. Efficacious or saving grace is, is God's pulling us from the curse of sin by redemption and the full penalty of that sin through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is writing about here. Efficacious, the way it gets used in our our world today is with pills, right? When you go to the pharmacy, does the pill work or not? Is it efficacious? Are we saved or not? Are we just living in common grace? If we're just living in common grace, we sometimes can't see what God is doing, so it's more tempting to do now what we want to do and not live into the hope that God has for us. But once we've taken hold of that saving grace, all of a sudden we can begin to see more clearly what it is that God is up to, the promises that God has before us. Famous quote from C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us enter into this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's a worldview which illuminates everything more clearly in what God is doing and helps us see that hope in better terms and in better light. We want to think about this in in just a simple, common way that common grace versus saving grace could work out in our lives. Common grace uh, would would, um, affirm that God's creation is good and that uh, what God has created is good we can all affirm that, and anybody living in common grace could, could see that. And common grace would, would put us in a level of what I'd call stewardship of what God has given us, which is a positive and a good thing. In fact, early on, the second command that we're, humans are given is to take care of this thing God created. That's to steward it. That's part of what we're supposed to do in the common grace that God has given us. But, that stewardship can sometimes lead us, if we're not looking at the hope 
that God has given us and the promise that God has given us to do a couple different things. One, we can withhold to steward. We can keep it to ourselves, we can hoard, we can tighten up and say, this is, this is mine. Or we can spend it like the prodigal son. This is mine, I'm going to spend it down now and live how I want to live now and enjoy it. And Jesus would tell us, you've had your reward. But if we just live at that level without taking hold of the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ and the promise of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here, then at the end of the day, all we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic of our lives. Ship is still going to sink, but it might look pretty well as going down. If you add to this the saving grace, the redemption offered through Jesus Christ, then you move from simply stewarding to the level of generosity with what God has given us and looking towards the hope that God has. And so we can recognize if we see the hope God has that we don't need to steal from now in order to, to have the fullness that God has for us. It's coming. We'll have good things now, but the best is yet to come. We can recognize that when when the rain falls on the unrighteous, and it seems like people who are doing wrong are succeeding more than those who are redeemed, which sometimes happens, that's not the end of the story. We can recognize when we start to live into that saving grace, and we're not just stewarding, but we're generous with what God has given, we can recognize that my hope and my freedom comes from God. We can recognize that the unrighteous may succeed when they face injustice, but my success is in the Lord. We can recognize that I'm a child not of slavery, but of freedom. And the covenant that is from heaven, not the earthly covenant. God rescued me, is what we proclaim, and I'm going to live like it. That's saving grace, children of God know their hope. I want to I pivot at this point to something that I think is going to be helpful, and it's going to relate to the sabbatical mention that was brought up before by Mark um, about the challenges that are coming up, because I want to I pivot to something that I think will relate very well to this. And let me give a quote first from a commentator, Todd Wilson. He says, if we fail to heed the teaching of Scripture, we're enslaved. Freedom, on the other hand, comes to those who hear God's word and respond with obedient faith. Jesus puts it this way, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He continues, Christians, however, easily forget this truth. We may affirm a love for the Bible, yet fail to listen to what it says. Or we articulate a desire to obey Scripture, yet remain ignorant of its teaching. If we're talking about children of God knowing their hope, then let's ask a good question. How do children of God remember their hope? So one of the challenges I have while I'm on sabbatical is I'm going to be working on memorizing scripture is one of the things that I do. And I'm challenging you to do it as well. There are these little cards. I'll give you some next week or in two weeks, but there are some in the back if you want them. And it says on here, can you go toe-to-toe with Pastor Evan? If you're not competitive, that line is not for you. If you are competitive, I'm going to beat you. So, (laughs) scripture memory. And and I bring this up 
uh, not because it's just a value to me and I want it to be a value to you, but uh, it's very easy to read scripture and not have it sink in very deep. I read it every morning. I read it over and over. I try and read the whole book once a year. But it's very easy to get to points and be like, oh, I forgot about that part. I mean, I'm assuming some of you are like that. You read it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Last time I read it. it. It doesn't sink in as deep as we want it to. We can easily forget. But but the other part of it is that we can have been following Jesus Christ for a long time and still be very unconfident in certain things that we're called to do by Jesus. I can't evangelize because I don't know what, how, what to say. I can't teach that class because I don't know all the answers. Right? I, I fear being asked about my beliefs because I'm not sure how to, how to articulate those things. But let me just point out, if Scripture says that the Spirit can pray on our behalf, Scripture can also speak on our behalf in those cases. Scripture can also be our mouthpiece in those moments. And Scripture sets us up the deeper it gets in. It's a training mechanism so we know what we believe and we know it deeper and deeper. And if you think about it, if you go to the gym and you work with a personal trainer, they're going to have some one-liners that are going to keep you going. And you're going to know, I'm here to exercise and be stronger when I leave than when I started. And I'm okay with a little bit of, of training exercise. Beth here and I taught, uh, we coached sixth grade girls volleyball this spring. It was fun. We had to have a lot of one-liners like, down and ready, stop looking around, down and ready, like, focus, the ball's going to come. We're here because we're going to play volleyball, right? Not to look at the crowd. Those kinds of things focus us and refine our energy so that we can look in the right direction. Many of your office places probably have posters around on the wall, like, success is this, or this is the mission statement of the company, or that kind of thing. Here, pray, grow, go. We heard it this morning. Those things help refine us so that we know what we're on about and what we're supposed to do. And when we memorize scripture, we can remember our hope. I did a, a just to give a little testimony of this, I did a, a retreat a year ago, memorized Zephaniah 1-7. Can we pop that up there, Garrett? Zephaniah 1-7, uh, I'm going to look at it even though I did memorize it. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, it says, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated those he has invited. For four days, I just walked trails and said it out loud. People walking past me probably looked at me like, what's he doing? Who's he talking to? They just kind of averted their eyes and looked down. I said it in my mind for four days. I didn't do any other memorizing or anything. I just worked on this one. And then every so often, you have to stop as you pray this. You don't have to use this verse. You can use any verse. But this is our example. So I'm walking down the trail. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. Aha, let me stop. Maybe I should take the text at its word. So then you're silent for a while. And in that silence, what does God say? You fear too much. Years ago, you didn't fear as much. Why do you fear so much now? That's something we need to work on, Evan. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. All of a sudden, the questions come off the page as it sinks in deeper. Okay, I just was preaching on that. What does that mean? What, am I ready for judgment? The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. As I, as I say it, as it gets deeper and deeper, I have to begin to think, okay, what, is, what does it mean to be consecrated? And would I qualify for this? Am I invited to the banquet? What's required of me, God? It takes you deeper and deeper into what God actually wants for you and from you and deepens that relationship. How do we remember our hope? We let it get in deeper and deeper. 
and deeper and deeper. Now, the excuses that come out, and I've used these, so I'll bring them. The excuses that come out are, I can't memorize things very well. If I sat down with any one of you after worship today and we started talking about commercial jingles from the 70s, 80s, 90s, or 2000s, where's the beef? We could do it, guys. We could do it. If I asked you to quote song lyrics, guaranteed you could not just quote them, but sing them for me, we can memorize. We can. The other, the other excuse that comes up, and I use this one myself, is I don't have the time to do it. Two years ago, I memorized Colossians 3, 1 through 17. I don't say that to brag. I say that to tell you that it took me one to two minutes a day for two weeks, done. Didn't have to change my routine a single bit. Just did it when I did my morning Bible reading. One to two minutes in the morning, looking at it, continuing on each morning, two weeks, done. Been incredibly profitable ever since. There's a, a headline from the satirical source, the Babylon Bee, this week. Rather enjoyed it. A Christian man goes on one meal per week diet to reflect Bible reading habits. <laughs> even if we read it every day, even if we read it multiple times a day, when you memorize it, it sinks in deeper. You, you digest it in a completely different way. When you let it get in, God's word in you means that God's work can work through you. God's word can work through you. It works in and through you in a completely different way. And when you memorize it, when you put it in like that, when you memorize it, the questions leap off the page and grip you. You're going to be confronted with questions you never thought possible from the text because you put it in. When you memorize, you see new words that you never saw before. I memorized Psalm 98, 1 and 2 a number of years ago. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Aha, for who? For him, not for me, for him. The salvation that you and I have in the Lord is not for my glory, it's for his glory first and foremost. Abundantly clear, but I didn't notice it before until I memorized it. When you memorize, you no longer read scripture, it reads you. That scares us because we're out of control then. It reads you. And when you memorize, you will be changed. And here's where we have to ask the key and important question. Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ? Do you want to be the redeemed who knows your promise and the hope promised to you? Do you want to be free? You want to live like the redeemed. That's what I'm suggesting all of this does. And I'm going to challenge you to try it this week, and I'll try it this week too. So uh, there are some paper instructions if you uh, don't know how to do it that are out in the narthex. I have this one here you can have after the service. And if you think this is not for me, then it's not. But if you're at all willing, let's do Galatians 5.1 this week because it's our text next week. And I'd love to hear during the week Somebody text, call, email me and tell me, you know what I'm trying? You know what I noticed was? Let's hear some testimony of what happens when we actually memorize and take this in because children of God know their hope. Let's pray. Lord, make us children of freedom, not of slavery. Set our hearts on your hope and your hope alone.
Don't let us settle for parodies of your grace, love, and promises so that we misidentify ourselves as yours when we really, when we really belong to the world. Move us from your common grace to saving grace that is effective, that does indeed rescue, that plucks us from the power of sin, death, and the devil. Put your word in our hearts ever deeper, fully, so that we see and experience you as never before. May your word in each of us change us, grow us, and transform us into your image. Amen.